on the latest episode of Real Health with me, Carl Henry. I'm delighted to be joined by international best-selling author Heman Sunim, telling us what to do when things don't go your way. When we are, you know, very young and have a first love and the first love did not work out, we feel as though this is the end of the world. However, we learn that is not the case. We move on. We find some other people. We begin to see that uh, when things don't go your way, uh, maybe it's not the end. As ever, we're available on all podcast platforms. Listen and follow the Left Wing Rugby podcast with me, Will Slattery and Luke Fitzgerald. As far as I can see, I always want to get in the Irish team. And that should be every young player's dream and ambition in this country. And if you're playing in a place where you're not going to get the opportunities in the big games, that they're the ones that get you picked. They are the ones, the Champions Cup games are the ones that get you picked. You need to be playing in a team and starting in a team for those games. It's as simple as that if you want to play in the Irish team. Every week on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the Indo Daily, you can follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today on the Indo Daily, downfall from boom boom to bust, the Boris Becker story. Boris Becker was only 17 when he took the tennis world by storm in 1985. He became the youngest champion in the history of the men's singles at Wimbledon. But who could have foreseen that he could have run right through this championship in succession style? Nicknamed Boom Boom, his domineering style on the court could only be matched by his high power spending office. He loved really good red wine, you know, loved fine dining, had this real sort of bon viveur, almost playboy lifestyle. And in April last year, the game was finally up for the man who was once hailed as the wonderkind when he was sentenced to two and a half years in jail for hiding assets valued at 2.5 million. His lawyers had argued this whole episode had been a tragic fall from grace after a glittering career. But he's back and there's a new two-part documentary on Apple by director Alex Gibney as he documents his rise and fall. It starts from the beginning. Nobody told me to win when we 17. I just did it. I'm Siobhan McGuire and today in the Indo Daily I'm joined by writer, sports commentator, tennis historian and ghostwriter of Boris Becker's 2015 biography, Boris Becker's Wimbledon. It's Chris Bowers. Chris, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Now, we know this uh, two-part Apple documentary is coming out at the end of this week. He's had quite a life, Boris Becker, and still only 55. Uh, Yes, I mean, there's a lot that's crammed in, but then he won Wimbledon at 17, and so he started early. Um, You know, one of the big things I find myself mulling over is how would any of us have reacted if we'd won Wimbledon at 17 and had the kind of adulation, adoration, fawning that he's had ever since then? I I suspect that uh, it would have tested the patience of a saint. And, you know, even Roger Federer, I think, might have not been quite the person that he ended up being had he had the success quite as early as it came. And I think that's probably at the root of an awful lot of what Becker has done and not done in the intervening, what, um, nearly 40 years. So it was 85 when when he won Wimbledon, Chris. 
and I w- remember that time and I remember that tennis players were essentially the rock stars back then. Uh, Andre Agassi later on, but Boris Becker at that time, posters all over the walls. I mean, these were the players you looked up to. Yeah, there's a lot in that. I mean, tennis was basically a very um, stuffy, fuddy-duddy, middle class, a rich man's game up to about 1968, because up to 68, you could only play in the most prestigious tournaments if you were amateur. So the professionals went and played exhibition matches to earn some money from their, you know, from their talent and their reputation. But uh, the uh, the most prestigious tournaments were actually reserved for the people who did it alongside some other job. It wasn't amateur, of course. It was shamateur. They, they paid people money under the table. And in 1968, it all went uh, professional. They said, right, let's get rid of all this ridiculous division between professional and amateur. And, and from that moment, tennis unleashed this boom. And they had a fantastic era in the 70s with the likes of Chris Evert, Jimmy Connors, Martina Navratilova, um, Bjorn Borg, and then John McEnroe. You can't be serious, man. You cannot be serious! And in a way, when Becker came along in the mid-80s, that sort of growth years, the first 15 years of open tennis had started to fade. And McEnroe had lost in the quarterfinals at Wimbledon and Connors had lost before the final. And so you've got this rather odd final of a of a 17-year-old German called Boris Becker, who no one had ever heard of, and Kevin Curran, who was a... Well, he was a South African, but playing for America because of the apartheid era. And it was thought of as a rather odd final. But in a way, what had happened there was that there was a big gap into which a charismatic figure needed to step. And that charismatic figure was this incredibly athletic 17-year-old German with uh, a personality to match. Uh, 7th of July, 1985, uh, was sort of my public birthday. Uh, and they called me the Wunderkind. You know, I've done something that nobody's done before. And, and you know, sin, thank God. And I can wait. I keep the record for a little bit longer. And, uh, yeah, my life has changed overnight. Uh, I became this, this you know, teen sensation. And ever since then, uh, the public is watching every step. Yeah, you mentioned uh, Boom earlier and uh, Boris Becker's nickname was Boom Boom. Talk to me about that. Well, yeah, I mean, it's because of the extra power he brought in. Every generation takes a sport to something of a new level. Um, one thing's the women's tennis shortly after where Steffi Graf came in with this massive forehand. All the players hit with a forehand like that these days. You know, um, Martina Navratilova in the 80s came in with a, a new diet. She focused on, you know, looking after what she ate to making uh, as a big part of making herself really fit. What Becker did was hit the ball so much harder. And that's one of the reasons why he could win at 17, is that his the power that he had was just amazing. What started so brilliantly for the number one seed, Agassi, is sent crashing to this same turf by Boris Becker. What wasn't certain is whether he had the, um, the, the match maturity to be able to win seven matches over a, a period of a fortnight, but he did. 7-6, Becker allowing... Only two points and two tiebreakers. And Nick Bullitt And uh, despite the fact that people forget this, Becker in the fourth round that year had 
almost retired. He'd got an ankle injury and he was walking up to the net. Fortunately, his opponent was at the back of the court and didn't see him. And while Becker was waiting at the net to shake hands and give up, his manager from the crowd, who was not supposed to be coaching, uh, shouted out, Boris, no, call the trainer. And in calling the trainer, he got himself uh, two or three minutes of breathing time. The trainer said, look, I don't think it's as bad as you think it is. So he carried on playing and the rest is history. Now, he could easily have pulled out then. And I do wonder whether being so close to having given up meant that he played with a freedom that meant that he was actually, he had got that match maturity to win seven matches over the best of five sets in two weeks, which is an amazing ask for somebody of 17. There's the famous trophy with all those wonderful names on it. And again, who could have believed that this youngster would be going forward to take this uh, historic trophy? He became something of a darling of the tabloid media, and I'm not, I'm not sure he would see it that way. But Boris Becker was all over the tabloids at the time. We all wanted to know about his personal life as well as his uh, sporting achievements. And then he retires at 31, also a very young age. But he did have this kind of playboy persona, Chris. Um, yeah, I mean, you say that about... Um, Ireland and same applies to Great Britain. It was 10 times bigger in Germany. He could not move in Germany. I actually remember when I reported on the tournament, there's a grass court tournament in Halle, which is halfway between Hanover and Bielefeld. And um, they wanted him for years, but he, because he played the uh, grass court tournament at the Queen's Club in London two weeks before Wimbledon, which he'd won the year bef- the year he won Wimbledon. He always said, no, 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 no. My build-up for Wimbledon is to play that tournament in London. But eventually Haller offered him enough money that he said, okay, I'll play Haller this year. So he went to Haller. I was there. And it was, I mean, I have to be careful what I say here because I don't want to insult anybody, but it was almost like some sort of religious um spectacle. Um, just imagine the, the Pope visiting. It was at that kind of level. You see people who would normally be very solid pillars of their community, the rock of their family, you know, middle-aged people, very respectable, going weak at the knees. And, you know, in the stadium when, it, when he was playing his matches and he, he'd miss a volley or something and you'd hear this collective... <gasps> From, from from the crowd as if, oh, oh you know, the world's come to an end. Boris has missed a volley. The, the, <laughs> how much people had invested in him was just phenomenal. And that's one of the reasons why he ended up living in London for so many years, because he said, I at least have a little bit of space in London. There are, yes, people recognize me and, you know, they, they, give, they pay me a certain amount of attention and I'm always busy being asked for photos and for autographs, but at least I get some breathing room in London. In Germany, they're on to me the whole time. So in a way, he, he had that to differing degrees wherever he went throughout his playing career. But, you know, much as he will say, I had no space to breathe, it also becomes a drug. It also becomes something he can't live without. And it's interesting that the notorious incident where his his third child, his first daughter, was conceived in a broom cupboard. He denies it was a broom cupboard. He says it was a staircase at a restaurant. The detail is small. But that happened. It was the night of his last match as a player. He'd said Wimbledon would be his last tournament in 1999. He 
got to the fourth round, not quite sure how. He saved a match point in the second round. He got to the fourth round. He was outclassed by Patrick Rafter, who was one of the leading players at that stage. And that night, he whatever he did or didn't do, it was the peccadillo that set the whole post-Becker playing career off on the wrong foot. And uh, in many ways, he's been paying for it since. But it was after retiring in 1999 that Becker's love life made him a staple of the tabloid front pages, largely courtesy of a paternity suit, DNA tests, then a divorce from his first wife after a brief but now infamous encounter with a Russian model in the broom cupboard of London's Nobu restaurant. And that same night, wasn't his wife giving birth in hospital? She was in hospital that night. Um, Yeah, it was, I mean, the juxtaposition of it all was quite dreadful. Um, But I think, in a way, that's why I mentioned the timing. I think Boris had this terrible fear, where do I go now? I have been my whole life, and it's not just that he won Wimbledon at 17. I mean, you don't just win Wimbledon at 17. If you're going to get to that position, he's hitting balls from, you know, three, four, five years old. By the age of seven, he's being taken every weekend places. All he's known has been hitting tennis balls. And at 31, his body given up. You know, he's been like Roger Federer who retired last year. Federer hadn't retired too early. Federer, Federer's body couldn't do it. Becker's body couldn't do it anymore. He knew he couldn't play anymore. So he's 31 years old, less than half the expected lifespan, and everything he's ever known has come to an end. And I think the enormity of what he felt he faced, the loss of the drug that sustained him, and a completely blank page for the rest of his life, I think was actually frightening to him. As a player, Boris Becker formed a special bond with the public. He was nicknamed Britain's favourite German. The champion joked he was top of a very short list, but at his peak, the tennis champion was worth nearly 40 million. And was the money drying up? Because obviously he was earning millions because of his star status uh, from the age of 17. What happened when he retired? And we know that Boris also liked to spend that money as well, didn't he, Chris? I was going to say to you, it's not that the money coming in dried up. It's that the money coming in was out of proportion to the money going out. And in a way, when I talk about the significance of of the timing, um, the, the settlement he reached with his daughter Anna's mother was expensive. And he later had a, uh, a fourth child, uh, Amadeus, to his second wife. Um, so he's got four children to three mothers. Um, he's now separated from her. He talks sort of about a patchwork family, which is a nice way of saying it. But what he doesn't talk about is just how much that cost him in money. And that's what bled him dry, as well as his own, you know, um, in, enjoyment of certain things in life which don't come cheap. And, uh, you know, I, 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 he doesn't talk about money. And I, when I was writing, I ghost wrote his uh, book that came out in 2015, Boris Becker's Wimbledon. So I spent a lot of time with him in the second half of 2014. Just, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of time going to his house in Wimbledon. Uh, uh, he had a house at that stage in Wimbledon, which with his then wife and uh, son. And, uh, the strong impression I got was, I will always be okay. I think the the, the fact that he'd always 
been so popular, the fact that he had many friends, uh, many of whom, you know, are, are not short of uh, a bit of cash, meant that he felt, I will always be okay. But he just pushed it too far. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I was a uh, CEO, the CFO and the COO of a company called Boris Becker Inc. But I was still very young and I dealt with, you know, 50-year-olds. But, you know, I, I paid them. They didn't pay me. And, and when, I, when I stopped playing, obviously, uh, I had to start from scratch. He could have gone to jail in 2003, but got let off then. And so when he was in court for a second time, I thought he'd actually be given a suspended sentence. But I think having had that first one where he was found guilty, but you know, given a suspended sentence then, I think the judges don't like people who uh, don't learn their lesson from that. And that's why he was uh, uh, put in prison. But I always felt he got the he had that sense, I will be okay. And it eventually caught up with him to the point where he wasn't okay. This afternoon, it was a judge serving the three times champion with a two and a half year prison sentence. After the former player was found guilty of hiding more than two million pounds worth of assets, including his Wimbledon trophies, to avoid paying his debts after being declared bankrupt in 2017. Today, the six-time Grand Slam champion wore his Wimbledon tie, perhaps hoping it would be a good omen, but it was a result that he hadn't wanted. Chris, was it a, a very much a working relationship that you had with Boris? I ask this because when you see him in interviews, he seems like quite a nice chap, actually. So I'm wondering whether it, you know, something on a, on a deeper level developed when, when you're working alongside and ghostwriting a book for somebody as big as Boris Becker. When years later, I end up interviewing him. My first interview with him was in Milan in 1993. Um, and he gets to know me as somebody who speaks English and German. So we can sort of, you know, speak one language or the other, depending on you know, where we happen to be. And then um, I get asked to ghostwrite his book. I think, oh, wow, yes, I have a, not a special relationship with Boris, but a, a good relationship. But I always wanted to keep it professional. And I'm glad I did. Because he's, um, if I say he's not the easiest man, I actually don't want to say that in as negative a sense as it sounds. I actually think that Boris could have ended up far more, um, wayward than he's actually ended up. Um, I, I think the the cocktail of, as I said, um, adoration, adulation and fawning that he had after he won Wimbledon at 17 would have actually made many people become quite despotic. How are you supposed to behave winning Wimbledon at 17? Also, you know, financially, I made my, my first million as a teenager. What do you do with it? And uh, yes, the media is powerful. Uh, when it's restricted on your tennis performances, then it's a bit easier. You talk about your wins and your losses. But when they enter your private life and your, your, your social aspects of your life, then it gets a bit more complicated. And the fact that he did keep an awful lot of his humanity, um, which you picked up on as a sort of, he always seemed quite a nice guy in interviews, um, is something I think to his credit because I think it was a very, very difficult situation for him to deal with. But 
he is not that easy. And although I think we worked extremely well on the book, and I got on perfectly well with him, and he was happy with what you know what I wrote. I mean, obviously, when you ghostwrite something, you're like a glorified secretary. It's still the person who signs the letter who, who takes responsibility for it, and it still borrows his book. But he was happy with what I did, and the book was moderately successful. But then a couple of years later, um, I was asked to do an interview for um, a documentary to celebrate his 50th birthday. So that would have been, what, in 2017. And he came to me a couple of months later and said, I didn't like what you said in the documentary. I said, well, what do you mean didn't like? What did I say? He said, well, I think you should watch the documentary. And I said, well, come on, Boris. I've, I've seen the documentary. What did I say that's upset you? He said, well, if you don't know that, then I think you should watch it again. And I said, come on, tell me what it is that's upset you. You know, I'm, I'm sorry if I've upset you. And he said, well, I'm sorry too, and walked away. I still don't know what I said, by the way. <laughs> I still don't know. I think it, 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 it may have been something around money. I think they, they asked me the question for the documentary, you know, are you surprised that Boris has been declared bankrupt? And I said something like, oh, well, it was an open secret in the tennis world that he had financial issues, which is true. And I don't think that's particularly damning, but that's the only thing I can think of that I said that might have upset him. But even that, if, if I'm right about that, that shows how how fragile his confidence is. And I and I think that's that's the nature of who Boris is. And of course, when we talk about the money, I mean, the spending was lavish, outlandish almost, you know, losing £10 million uh, investing in Nigerian oil and gas, launching a tennis academy in China, trying to build a Boris Becker business tower in Dubai that collapsed in 2011. The name Boris Becker now synonymous not only with sporting success, but a series of big financial losses after being declared bankrupt selling sports cars and houses. Today, his lawyer said Becker was left with literally nothing. And you mentioned that year 17 and the bankruptcy. And then, of course, we know this finally catches up on him and he's jailed by a UK court and and, and that's it. He's going to prison. Yeah, but, you know, one of the things that I picked up from him, uh, you know, he said, I've, I've, I've got an office in London. I've got business interests. You know, I'm not just an ex-tennis player. And that resonated with me because I do remember in his playing days, he would sometimes say, you know, look, I only didn't go to university because I won Wimbledon at 17. You know, um, I was in the the grammar school. I was in the stream that was, you know, being uh, prepared for university, um, and and that also came up when when we did the book in 2014, 2015. He has a chip on his shoulder that people think he's not as bright as he thinks he is, and and I think had he had the chance to go to university, I think he feels people wouldn't be saying that. He was released in December of last year, and now we know he's doing the rounds um, in relation to this new documentary that's coming out. Uh, he didn't have the, a great time in prison, by uh, all accounts. It's a it's a different world. You you only can share it with other inmates because you know somebody outside world they wouldn't believe it. So yes, uh, it's dangerous. It's you have to. Always look around your shoulder. You 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 don't know who's in the next cell. Another difficult moment was that you know I'm, I'm surrounded by you know murderers, by rapists, by you know drug dealers, by people yeah. smugglers, all inmates, and we all we all we all share the same canteen. 
So, so how you deal with that? He can't come back to the UK um, or apply for a UK visa for 10 years, I understand. So what's he going to do now, do you think? And, and, and what will we remember Boris Becker for? Will it be for the tennis or for the antics outside of the court? Oh, it's interesting. I was asked that the uh, the, the week of his um, sentence, and I said, no, no, no. The day Boris falls off his perch, we will still be talking about him as one of the great tennis players, uh, and we will. You know, he he was uh, he won six of the major titles: three Wimbledon's, uh, two Australian Opens, one U.S. Open. He was world number one. He won the Davis Cup. He won an Olympic gold medal in doubles. You know, his um, record speaks for itself. Uh, he was also incredibly charismatic. Germany is a country with a lot of uh, tennis, um, lots of clubs, but hadn't had a decent tennis player properly really since the 1930s. Becker comes along and is a world beater. No, we'll definitely remember the tennis. There's no question about that. Uh, it'll be very interesting to watch what he does. I suspect, knowing Boris Becker, there will never be a dull moment. And a huge thanks there to writer, sports commentator, tennis historian and the ghostwriter of Boris Becker's 2015 biography, Boris Becker's Wimbledon, Chris Bowers. I'm Siobhan McGuire and today's episode of The Indo Daily was produced by myself, researched by Paul Highland with sound by John Smith. Archive clips from Wimbledon, the BBC, The Guardian, Wyon News, Sky Sports and independent.ie. If you enjoy the Indo Daily, don't forget to like, follow and leave us a review.